you are now tuned into World War I Stories. I'm your host, Steve Matthews, here to guide you through the labyrinth of memories and tales from the war to end all wars. Each Tuesday and Thursday, we dive headfirst into the captivating stories of World War I. We will traverse the trenches, soar with the Red Baron, and witness the dawn of modern warfare. We'll recount tales of courage and sacrifice, of human endurance against the odds, and of a world forever changed. But our journey through history doesn't stop there. For those of you eager to continue the exploration, we invite you to check out our sister podcast dedicated to World War II, which explores the next dramatic chapter of global conflict. You can find the link in the description or head over to podhour.com slash ww1. As the first light of dawn caressed the quaint Belgian town of Mons on August 23, 1914, few could have imagined that this serene landscape was on the brink of a violent transformation. Nestled between the winding curves of the Hain River and a cluster of old coal mines, the town bore the peaceful slumber of an ordinary Sunday. But, unbeknownst to the inhabitants, it was about to become the scene of the first significant clash between the British and German forces in World War I. This encounter, soon to be known as the Battle of Mons, was not the largest battle of the Great War, nor the deadliest, but its significance cannot be understated. It was here, among the cobblestone streets and modest homes of Mons, that the British expeditionary force made their valiant stand against the German First Army setting the stage for the grueling conflict to come. This story takes you on a journey back to those fateful days leading up to and during the Battle of Mons. It unearths the strategies and blunders, courage and despair, leaders and soldiers who were thrust into this dramatic chapter of history. Our narrative delves into the prelude to war, the powerful personalities on both sides, the tense clash of arms, the decisions that changed the course of the battle and the profound impact it left on the broader canvas of World War I. As we traverse this historical landscape, we explore not just the events, but their enduring legacy and the lessons they impart to this day. Prepare to step back in time to those early days of August 1914, where amidst the echoes of gunfire and the whispers of angels, we begin our exploration of the Battle of Mons. Chapter 1. The Prelude as the 20th century dawned, the map of Europe was a mosaic of mighty empires, fledgling states, and ambitious nations, each with its own dreams and anxieties. This was the setting of the European powder keg, a phrase that encapsulates the buildup of tensions and rivalries that, like a barrel of gunpowder, needed only a spark to explode. At the heart of this simmering situation was the fiery Balkans region. It was a landscape imbued with a rich tapestry of diverse cultures and languages, where the great Ottoman Empire was slowly losing its grip. New countries, eager to assert their independence, were emerging from the shadows of the once mighty Turkish Empire. Among them was the small but determined Kingdom of Serbia, nursing a fervent dream of unifying all Slavic people under its banner. The gaze of the Serbian nationalists fell upon the neighboring Bosnia and Herzegovina, a territory teeming with fellow Slavs but unfortunately, under the administration of the mighty Austro-Hungarian Empire. This empire, led by the aging Emperor Franz Joseph I, was a patchwork of multiple ethnic groups, 
languages, and religions, with the imperial government in Vienna struggling to hold its intricate jigsaw together. The burgeoning ambitions of Serbia were seen as a direct threat to the empire's brittle unity. Meanwhile, in the western corners of Europe, two rival powers, France and Germany, were nursing old grudges. Germany, a young nation unified by the indomitable Otto von Bismarck, had defeated France in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, seizing the resource-rich territory of Alsace-Lorraine. This loss was a festering wound in the French psyche, an affront they were determined to avenge. Under the eagle-eyed leadership of Kaiser Wilhelm II, Germany was rapidly industrializing and expanding its military might. Wilhelm II's brash diplomacy and determination to make Germany a global power put the long-standing balance of power in Europe at risk. This rising tide of German power evoked fear and suspicion among its neighbors, particularly in Britain, the reigning superpower, which had long enjoyed uncontested command over the world's oceans. In the midst of this tense tableau, a complex web of alliances began to form. Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy bound themselves in the Triple Alliance, promising mutual support in the event of an attack. France, Russia, and Britain, anxious about the increasing might of the Central Powers, responded with their own pact, the Triple Entente. This was the European powder keg in all its volatility. A single spark could ignite a conflict that could consume the continent. That spark came in the summer of 1914, with the assassination of the Austro-Hungarian heir, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, in Sarajevo. What began as a localized conflict in the Balkans quickly escalated into a full-blown war. Amidst the smoke and debris of shattered peace, the British expeditionary force was preparing for its voyage across the English Channel, heading towards the pivotal encounter at Mons. As the war drums echoed across Europe, the strategists in the German high command had their eyes trained on a map. Their objective was to avoid a nightmare scenario for Germany, a war on two fronts against two formidable adversaries, France and Russia. This challenge had been anticipated years earlier by Alfred von Schlieffen, Germany's then chief of the general staff. Schlieffen, a stern, meticulous man with an intellect as sharp as the Prussian winter, had dedicated his career to solving this puzzle. His answer was the Schlieffen Plan, a daring strategy meant to outflank the enemy and deliver a decisive victory in the West before turning the full might of the German army eastward towards Russia. It was a gamble, a race against time and resources, hinged on the belief that Russia, due to its vast size and undeveloped infrastructure, would take longer to mobilize its forces. The plan was breathtaking in its ambition. It called for a rapid sweep through neutral Belgium to circumvent the formidable French fortifications along the Franco-German border. After encircling the French army and capturing Paris, the German forces would then move east to face the Russians. Schlieffen's successor, Helmut von Maltke the Younger, was tasked with implementing the plan. Maltke, a cautious man carrying the weight of his prestigious family name, felt the ghost of Schlieffen's presence in every decision he made. Maltke, unlike his predecessor, had misgivings about the plan's feasibility and had made modifications to it. These changes, many argued, compromised the plan's intent and effectiveness. 
as Germany declared war on Russia on August 1, 1914, and on France two days later, the Schlieffen Plan was set into motion. Countless young German soldiers, their uniforms pristine and spirits high, boarded trains heading west, unaware of the brutal realities of war they were soon to face. Meanwhile, in Britain, there were ripples of unease. The invasion of neutral Belgium, guaranteed by an ancient treaty Britain was a signatory to, was seen as a flagrant violation of international law. This move by Germany made British intervention in the conflict inevitable. The soldiers of the British Expeditionary Force, unaware of the strategic dance taking place, prepared to cross the channel and enter a battlefield that was being molded by the audacious Schlieffen plan. On England's southern shores, a whirlwind of activity took over the usually calm seaside towns. Soldiers clad in khaki uniforms and laden with packs and rifles swarmed the piers, their boots clacking against the wooden docks as they boarded the transports. They were part of the British Expeditionary Force, otherwise known as the BEF, the country's initial contribution to the war on the continent. At the helm was Sir John French, a stern, mustachioed man with a firm gaze that seemed to constantly assess the horizon. His military career was as colorful as it was controversial, having served in the Sudan and the Boer War. Yet, nothing in his experience had prepared him for the colossal task ahead to lead the BEF in a war unlike any before. French's second-in-command, Horace Smith Dorian, stood out in stark contrast. Where French was aloof and sometimes indecisive, Smith Dorian was warm, level-headed, and resolute. He was a seasoned officer, scarred but unbroken by his experiences in the African colonies and India. Among the men, whispers of excitement, trepidation, and longing for home filled the air. Many believed, or at least hoped, the war would be over by Christmas, unaware of the prolonged hardship they were about to face. In their midst was the 19-year-old private, Jack Watson. An unassuming lad from Yorkshire, Jack was eager yet apprehensive, thrown into a grand adventure far from the familiar dales of his home. His letters to his sweetheart, Mary served as an anchor to normality amidst the growing sea of uncertainty. As the ships sailed out into the channel, the chalk-white cliffs of Dover gradually receded into the distance. The men watched their homeland fade away, not knowing when they would see her again. The unknown awaited them on the other side, in Belgium, where the German army was advancing relentlessly, fueled by the ambitious Schlieffen plan. There, in the small, unassuming town of Mons, these men from across the channel were heading for their first taste of the Great War. Chapter 2 The Leaders and the Lead John French was not a man one could easily forget. With his stark white mustache accentuating his stern features and piercing gaze, he was every bit the picture of a British military officer. His reputation as a decorated cavalry commander from earlier wars preceded him. Yet the prospect of leading the BEF in a conflict of this scale was an entirely different challenge. Born into an aristocratic family in 1852, French had seen his share of conflicts, serving in the Sudan and the Boer War. However, his career was not without controversy. His decision to send cavalry against fortified Boer positions, resulting in heavy losses, raised questions about his tactical judgment. 
Despite this, his charisma, connections, and proven ability to lead men in combat helped him rise through the ranks. His appointment as the commander of the BEF brought him face-to-face -face with his counterpart, Smith Dorian. While they both shared a history serving in Sudan and the Boer War, their contrasting personalities made for a strained relationship. French's aloof nature often clashed with Smith Dorian's candid demeanor, which added an additional layer of tension to the already grave circumstances. French's leadership style was known to be reserved, even cryptic at times. He was a man of few words, which often left his subordinates second-guessing his intentions. His orders were concise, sometimes to the point of being ambiguous, and he expected them to be followed to the letter. This trait, while helpful in maintaining discipline, also stoked confusion and uncertainty among his men. His strategic approach was informed by his cavalry background. He valued mobility and flexibility, focusing on maneuvering his forces swiftly to gain an advantage. However, the emerging realities of the Great War, characterized by trench warfare and heavy artillery, called for a shift in tactics that French was slow to adopt. As the BEF neared the Belgian coast, French was in a pensive mood, staring out at the horizon. The responsibility of leading these men into battle weighed heavily on him. A battle was looming, one that would test his leadership, challenge his tactical acumen, and shape the course of his career. Unknown to him, the battleground would be the small Belgian town of Mons, soon to become synonymous with the first major clash of the Great War. On the other side of the swiftly approaching conflict, the weight of German ambitions rested on the shoulders of a seasoned commander, Karl von Bülow. Unlike his counterpart, Sir John French, von Bülow was a man who thrived on thoroughness and strict order. His world was one of precise plans and regimented military discipline, inextricably tied to the Prussian tradition of meticulous preparation and unyielding tenacity. Born into Prussian nobility in 1846, von Bülow had military service etched into his lineage. His career had been a steady ascent through the ranks of the Prussian, and later, the German military. Known for his stern demeanor and tactical acumen, he commanded respect from his peers and subordinates alike. The aging general had weathered the storm of numerous conflicts, honing his strategic expertise during the Franco-Prussian War. It was his experiences during these battles that shaped his belief in the power of thorough preparation and the necessity of cohesive troop movements. His attention to detail was meticulous, his orders clear and concise, leaving no room for misinterpretation. Bülow had been entrusted with the command of the German Second Army, a significant portion of the force tasked with the execution of the Schlieffen Plan. He was expected to follow the path carved by the First Army, securing northern France and opening the route towards Paris. His concerns about the plan, particularly its reliance on strict timetables and the assumption of a slow Russian mobilization, were often brushed aside in the high command meetings. But von Bülow was not a man to let apprehension deter him from his duty. He focused his energy on readying his men for the monumental task ahead. Beneath the stern exterior was a man deeply dedicated to his country and his men. He carried the burden of thousands of lives on his shoulders, a fact he never allowed himself to forget. Every plan he charted, 
Every order he issued echoed with his profound sense of responsibility. As the German forces plowed through Belgium, von Bülow led his men with unwavering resolve. Little did he know that his path would soon cross with that of the British Expeditionary Force, under the command of Sir John French, in the town of Mons. The stage was set for an encounter that would test these two seasoned commanders and forever mark the early days of the Great War. As the generals charted the course of war from their headquarters, the real test of metal unfolded in the grimy, claustrophobic trenches that zigzagged across the Belgian countryside. Here, a world away from the drawing rooms of strategists and the regal pomp of the monarchy, the soldiers of the BEF and the German Second Army grappled with the brutal reality of warfare. Private Jack Watson, the young recruit from Yorkshire, found his world turned upside down. The trenches were a far cry from the grand adventure he had imagined. Mod, misery, and monotony replaced the visions of glory and valor he'd been fed back home. His letters to his sweetheart, Mary, carried a somber tone as he grappled with the realities of his surroundings. Watson and his comrades found themselves fighting not just the Germans but the harsh conditions of the trenches as well. Maud was a constant companion, kicking their uniforms and making each step an exhausting effort. When the rains came, the trenches transformed into a swampy nightmare, the water level rising up to their knees. Yet, Despite these hardships, camaraderie thrived. Soldiers huddled together for warmth, sharing tales from home, and forging bonds that would endure the horrors of war. Sergeant Peter Collins, a rugged veteran and natural leader, emerged as the heart of Watson's unit. His body jokes and tales of past skirmishes lifted the men's spirits, offering a beacon of hope amidst the grim realities of trench warfare. Across the no-man's land, the German soldiers were wrestling with similar challenges. Corporal Friedrich Muller, a baker from Munich drafted into the war, found himself plunged into a reality he'd only heard of in hushed conversations back home. The food was scarce and monotonous, sleep was a luxury, and danger lurked with every dawn. The letters Muller wrote to his young son, Hans spoke of a strange new world where the sound of gunfire had become a grim lullaby. He wrote about his comrade, Lieutenant Heinrich Strauss, a stern yet fatherly figure who guided Muller and his fellow soldiers through the harrowing days and nights in the trenches. In these dugouts, miles away from their homes, these men were the true face of the Battle of Mons. Their stories, their struggles, and their sacrifices formed the heart of this historical encounter, underscoring the stark contrast between the grand strategies of war and the harrowing realities on the ground. The Battle of Mons was not just a clash of armies, it was a test of human resilience in the face of unprecedented adversity. Chapter 3 The Clash at Mons As the preparations for the imminent battle reached a fever pitch, a strange calm descended on Mons. Soldiers of the BEF, entrenched in the outer rim of the city, watched as the usual bustle of the Belgian town slowed, giving way to an eerie stillness. Sir John French, ensconced in his makeshift headquarters, pored over maps and dispatches. His stern visage bore a quiet intensity as he worked with his staff officers to coordinate troop movements and defenses. His deputy, Smith Dorian, was a constant presence at his side 
offering his counsel and ensuring orders were accurately relayed to the frontline commanders. Amidst the high command's tense deliberations, Private Jack Watson found himself hunkered down in a trench, his rifle at his side. The rawness of his experience mirrored the anxious lull that hung over the town. He filled his time by writing to his sweetheart, Mary, painting a picture of the tranquil Belgian countryside that hid the brewing storm. Watson's words were his refuge, a slice of normalcy amidst the rising tension. In the heart of the town, the residents of Mons watched as their peaceful home was transformed into a fortress. Fear and anticipation hung in the air as they shuttered their homes and said silent prayers, hoping that their town would be spared the horrors of war. Meanwhile, on the other side of the approaching conflict, Carl von Bülow, ever the meticulous planner, worked with his officers to align his troops for the impending assault. His stern orders reverberated across the German lines, each command carrying the weight of the enormous task that lay ahead. For Corporal Friedrich Muller and his fellow German soldiers, the anticipation was palpable. Muller found solace in the camaraderie with his comrades, their shared uncertainty fostering a deep bond. His letters to his son Hans painted a vivid picture of the tense atmosphere and the apprehension that gripped every soldier. As the dusk settled on August 22, 1914, the calm before the storm held everyone in its grip. The Battle of Mons, a pivotal moment in the early days of the Great War, was on the horizon. It promised to test the mettle of all involved, from the highest-ranking generals to the foot soldiers in the trenches, changing their lives and the course of history in ways they could hardly imagine. The sun broke over the horizon on August 23, 1914, casting long shadows over the battlefield. The day had arrived. The tranquility of the previous evening shattered as the first shots rang out, signaling the beginning of the Battle of Mons. At the British front lines, Private Jack Watson experienced the horrors of war for the first time. The deafening cacophony of gunfire and the terrifying whiz of bullets filled the air. The smell of spent gunpowder mingled with the scent of the earth, creating a sensory overload that was as disorienting as it was terrifying. His hands shook as he held his rifle, the cold metal a stark contrast to the adrenaline coursing through his veins. Sergeant Peter Collins, the heart of Watson's unit, barked orders, guiding his men through the terrifying symphony of violence. His rugged features were set in a determined grimace, an embodiment of courage amidst the chaos. Back at the British headquarters, Sir John French and Smith Dorian absorbed the first reports of the conflict. Their faces reflected the gravity of the situation as they worked to coordinate their men's responses and fortify their positions. Across the no-man's land, the German forces advanced under a rain of bullets. Corporal Friedrich Muller experienced the same terror as his British counterpart. As a baker, he had never imagined being thrown into such a dire situation. His friend, Lieutenant Heinrich Strauss, directed his men with a firm, steady voice, striving to keep them focused amidst the frenzy. In his command post, Carl von Bülow closely monitored the situation, issuing orders with a cool precision that belied the turmoil unfolding on the front lines. His reliance on the Schlieffen plan was being tested in real time, adding a layer of tension to the grim proceedings. 
the first day of the Battle of Mons was a baptism by fire for many, from the generals at their headquarters to the men in the trenches. The promise of a quick, decisive war began to crumble under the reality of a brutal, protracted conflict. The first blood was drawn, setting the stage for a fight that would redefine the early days of the Great War and leave a lasting legacy in the annals of history. In the heat of battle, chaos often reigned supreme, as it did during the Battle of Mons. Yet, amidst the turmoil and confusion, there are moments that reflect the strength of the human spirit and the determination to prevail against all odds. Sir John French despite the immense pressure and chaos of the battle, demonstrated resilience and decisive leadership. As the German forces advanced, and the situation seemed bleak, French made a crucial decision. He ordered a retreat, a move seen by some as an admission of defeat but, in the swirling chaos of the battlefield, it was a decision that arguably saved the British forces from complete destruction. Private Jack Watson, on the front lines of the battle, also found himself in the midst of chaos. Amidst the thundering guns, the screams of wounded men, and the ominous approach of the German forces, Watson kept his calm. He held his ground, standing shoulder to shoulder with his comrades, firing his rifle until the order to retreat came. His calmness amidst the chaos, emblematic of the courage shown by many others on that fateful day, later became a cornerstone of his legacy. Kaiser Wilhelm II, far away from the battlefield, felt the chaos in a different way. News of the delay in the Schlieffen plan brought uncertainty and confusion. The Kaiser, initially confident of a swift victory, had to grapple with the reality of a protracted war. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, President Woodrow Wilson faced a chaos of his own. As news of the battle reached the United States, public opinion was divided, with growing calls for intervention in the war. Wilson, trying to navigate the political maelstrom, remained firm in his commitment to neutrality, a stance that would only become more difficult to maintain as the war continued. These individual experiences amidst the chaos of the Battle of Mons reflect the broader chaos of the Great War. Yet, in each story, there's a threat of determination, resilience, and bravery that underlines the human capacity to persist, even in the face of overwhelming chaos. These stories, from the battlefield to the halls of power, are as much a testament to the human spirit as they are an account of historical events. Chapter 4 Turning the Tide As the first day of battle gave way to the second, the full weight of the German forces became clear. Despite the stiff resistance offered by the BEF, the sheer numbers of the German Second Army began to tell. The strength of the Schlieffen plan was not just in its audacious maneuver, but in the overwhelming numbers it brought to bear on the Western Front. Back at the British lines, the reality was sinking in. Private Jack Watson, still shaken from the first day's events, stared out across the no man's land. The sight of the advancing German forces, their numbers appearing to grow with each passing hour, sent a chill down his spine. Sergeant Peter Collins remained resolute amidst the escalating odds. His steady presence was a source of strength for Watson and his fellow soldiers. Even as they grappled with the daunting sight of the German onslaught, Collins rallied them, his voice a resolute drumbeat against the rising tide of despair. 
Sir John French, receiving reports of the German advances, felt the pressure mounting. The weight of the command was heavy on his shoulders, but he remained committed to holding the line. Smith Dorian, his trusted deputy, worked tirelessly, sending reinforcements where they were most needed, even as their resources stretched thin. On the German side, Corporal Friedrich Muller was part of the seemingly unstoppable force pushing towards Mons. His letters to his son, Hans, spoke of the vast sea of men advancing alongside him. Yet beneath his descriptions of the German might, a note of uncertainty lingered. Lieutenant Heinrich Strauss, a seasoned campaigner, understood the power of their numbers, yet he also realized that such a force would be difficult to control if the tide of the battle turned. His conversations with Muller were candid, his belief in their duty to the fatherland unwavering, but not blind to the challenges ahead. Karl von Bülow, aware of his numerical advantage, pressed on. He continued to drive his men forward, firmly believing in the strength of the Schlieffen plan. The full weight of the German numbers was brought to bear on the BEF, tipping the balance of the battle. The scale of the German forces was a defining aspect of the Battle of Mons. It presented a significant challenge to the British and a formidable asset to the Germans, shaping the course of the battle and the broader trajectory of the war. As the second day of the Battle of Mons wore on, it became increasingly clear to Sir John French that the situation was dire. The formidable German forces continued their relentless advance, pressing the BEF on all sides. Despite their valiant efforts, the British lines were stretched thin, their resources dwindling. In his makeshift headquarters, French poured over maps and dispatches, his mind churning with the gravity of the situation. His features were etched with exhaustion and tension, but his eyes held a resolute glint, a reflection of the determination that had carried him throughout his military career. Smith Dorian, ever the dependable deputy, offered his counsel. His pragmatic advice, delivered with his typical steadiness, was a grounding force for French. Together, they weighed their options, understanding that their decisions would not only impact the fate of the BEF but also the broader course of the war. Private Jack Watson and his comrades, unaware of the high-level discussions, continued their staunch resistance in the trenches. Amid the deafening noise of gunfire and the disorienting flurry of activity, Watson found a moment of stillness. He thought of Mary, his mind clinging to her image as a beacon of hope amidst the chaos. The decision that French ultimately made would resonate through the history of the Great War. Recognizing the escalating odds and the potential for a devastating defeat, French ordered a strategic retreat. His decision was not taken lightly, acknowledging the potential cost to morale but French's focus was on preserving his forces for the long battle ahead, understanding that the war would not be won or lost at Mons. Word of the retreat reached the trenches, met with a mixture of relief and disappointment. Watson, his body aching and his mind wearied from the intense fighting, felt a twinge of sadness. They were giving up ground, yet the wisdom of the decision was not lost on him. As the order of retreat was executed under the cover of darkness, French's decision marked the end of the Battle of Mons. It was a bitter pill for the BEF, but a necessary strategy in the grand scheme of the Great War. 
The retreat from Mons, while a tactical setback, was a strategic decision that underscored the enormity of the challenges that lay ahead in the long and bloody conflict. In the aftermath of the Battle of Mons and the British retreat, a tale began to circulate among the weary soldiers. It was a story that would transform into a legend, known as the Angels of Mons. A symbol of hope amidst the bleak reality of war, these celestial beings were said to have protected the retreating soldiers, allowing them to withdraw under the cover of darkness and evade capture or annihilation. Private Jack Watson, huddled around a makeshift fire with his comrades, heard the tale for the first time. He listened with wide eyes as one of his fellow soldiers recounted how he'd seen ethereal figures hovering over the battlefield. The soldier, a man named Robert Evans, claimed they were like medieval archers, their celestial arrows halting the German advance. Watson, though skeptical, was drawn to the story, a welcome distraction from the grim realities of their situation. Sergeant Peter Collins, hearing the tale, allowed a rare smile to break through his usually stern demeanor. He saw the story as a much-needed morale booster for his men, a beacon of hope in the harsh aftermath of retreat. He didn't openly endorse the tale, but he didn't dismiss it either, understanding its value in maintaining his men's spirits. Even as this myth circulated among the soldiers, at the headquarters, Sir John French and Smith Dorian grappled with the reality of their strategic retreat. They had no time for legends, their focus firmly set on the logistical and strategic challenges they faced. Still, they were aware of the story and the impact it had on their men's morale, even if they never discussed it openly. Across the lines, Corporal Friedrich Muller heard whispers of the angels that protected the British. He was bemused by the tale, attributing it to the fog of war and the soldiers' need for comfort in a grim reality. However, it gave him a moment's pause, a testament to the unexpected and inexplicable facets of warfare. The legend of the Angels of Mons was more than just a tale of divine intervention. It was a reflection of the human capacity for hope and resilience in the face of overwhelming adversity. As the soldiers braced for the challenges ahead, the story of the angels served as a reminder of their shared humanity and the enduring spirit that would carry them through the darkest hours of the Great War. Chapter 5 The Aftermath and Impact The retreat from Mons was no small affair. It was a carefully orchestrated maneuver involving tens of thousands of men and resources, unfolding under the pressing threat of the advancing German forces. This great retreat, as it came to be known, was a pivotal moment in the early stages of the Great War, setting the tone for the protracted and bloody conflict that was to follow. Private Jack Watson, alongside his fellow soldiers, found himself in the throes of this vast and complex operation. The retreat was a stark contrast to the static trench warfare he had initially experienced. They moved under the cloak of darkness, the light of the moon casting long shadows over the men as they slipped away from their positions. Watson felt a sense of dislocation, the familiar trenches replaced by an ever-changing landscape. Sergeant Peter Collins had a crucial role during the retreat. His calm and composed demeanor, even under such trying circumstances, helped guide his men through the challenging operation. He kept them focused and maintained their morale, reminding them that each step they took was not a retreat, 
but a strategic move in a bigger plan. At the headquarters, Sir John French and Smith Dorian worked tirelessly, coordinating the retreat. Their work was an intricate dance of strategy and logistics, ensuring that the BEF withdrew in an orderly manner while maintaining the illusion of continued resistance. Their task was further complicated by the need to stay in touch with their French allies and coordinating their efforts in line with the broader Allied strategy. In contrast, the Germans, under Karl von Bülow, viewed the British retreat as a clear victory. Muller and his comrades celebrated, believing the war would soon be over. However, the experienced Strauss knew better, understanding that this retreat was not an admission of defeat but rather a strategic move that signaled a prolonged war. The Great Retreat was more than a simple withdrawal. It was a tactical maneuver that allowed the BEF to regroup and continue fighting another day. It marked the end of the Battle of Mons but the beginning of a long, drawn-out war that would test the mettle of all involved. The retreat and the circumstances surrounding it offered an intriguing narrative of courage, resilience, and strategic thinking, the implications of which would reverberate throughout the rest of the Great War. The Battle of Mons and the subsequent retreat of the British forces represented a delay in the execution of the Schlieffen Plan. Originally designed to swiftly knock France out of the war, the plan hinged on a rapid advance through Belgium and a quick victory on the Western Front. Yet, the unexpected resistance offered by the BEF at Mons and the time consumed in chasing the retreating forces had disrupted the German timetable. General Karl von Bülow, who had initially reveled in the apparent victory at Mons, was growing increasingly concerned. Each day of delay allowed the French and British forces to regroup and prepare for the German advance. The momentum that the German Second Army had initially enjoyed was slowly slipping away. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Heinrich Strauss, a seasoned soldier, recognized the implications of the delay. His conversations with his young comrade, Corporal Friedrich Muller, reflected his growing apprehension. The swift victory they had hoped for was now replaced with a protracted conflict, testing their resolve and stamina. Back at the British lines, the news of the delayed German advance brought a glimmer of hope. Sir John French, despite the recent retreat, felt a renewed sense of purpose. He knew the delay had bought them precious time. Together with Smith Dorian, he began organizing his troops, leveraging the time gained to fortify their positions and prepare for the continued German advance. Private Jack Watson, upon hearing of the German delay, felt a surge of relief and renewed determination. The retreat, which had initially felt like a defeat, now seemed like a strategic victory. His spirits lifted, he wrote to his sweetheart Mary, expressing hope and a newfound resolve to face whatever lay ahead. The delayed Schlieffen plan was a turning point in the Great War. It marked a shift from the quick victory Germany had anticipated to a more drawn-out and complex conflict. The story of this delay, born out of the Battle of Mons, weaves a tale of strategic decisions, human resilience, and the unpredictable nature of war. The delay shaped the course of the war and set the stage for many of the significant events that would unfold in the subsequent years. News of the Battle of Mons and the ensuing retreat had reached the halls of power, sending ripples through the decision-makers on both sides of the conflict.
In Britain, Prime Minister Herbert Asquith grappled with the initial reports, the gravity of the situation sinking in. A decorated politician, Asquith maintained a stoic exterior, but inside he felt the weight of the war's reality. Meanwhile, the tale of the Angels of Mons reached the British public, including Mary, the sweetheart of Private Jack Watson. Amidst the fear and uncertainty, she clung to this miraculous tale, praying for Jack's safety and the well-being of the brave men fighting in the war. In Germany, the Kaiser Wilhelm II, an imposing figure known for his fiery rhetoric and militaristic leanings, found himself frustrated at the news of the delay in the Schlieffen plan. The quick victory he had promised now seemed a distant dream. His meetings with the Chief of General Staff, Helmuth von Maltke the Younger, grew increasingly tense, the pressure of the unfolding war straining their relationship. In France, President Raymond Poincaré, a man of calm demeanor and deep intellect, closely followed the developments at Mons. The British retreat, while worrisome, also signaled the Germans' slowed advance, providing France with the precious time needed to bolster its defenses. Across the Atlantic, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, known for his advocacy for peace, received updates about the unfolding situation in Europe. The events in Mons reaffirmed his commitment to keeping the United States neutral, even as the horrors of the war escalated. The echoes of Mons reached far beyond the battlefields, shaping the decisions of the leaders and stirring the hearts of the common people. The repercussions of the battle and the delayed Schlieffen plan were felt in the highest corridors of power, shaping strategies, influencing decisions, and setting the tone for international relations amidst the chaos of the Great War. The story of these echoes, intertwined with the lives of leaders and ordinary people alike, paints a vivid picture of the reach and impact of the conflict. Chapter 6 Legacy of the Battle In the years following the Great War, the Battle of Mons and its ensuing events etched a deep mark in the annals of history. Its influence was not just confined to military strategies or war tactics, but stretched out to shape the collective memories and national identities of those involved. Sir John French, after retiring from his military service, published his memoirs in 1919. His vivid recollections of Mons and the Great Retreat offered a unique insight into the early days of the war. His account, however, faced criticism for his handling of the retreat. French's legacy, shaped in part by his leadership during the Battle of Mons, remained a point of intense debate among historians and military analysts. Private Jack Watson, having survived the war, returned to his quiet life in England. The memories of the war, however, lingered with him. He shared his experiences, including the tale of the Angels of Mons, with his grandchildren, the stories becoming a part of the family folklore. Kaiser Wilhelm II, after living in exile in the Netherlands, had time to reflect on the war and the many decisions he had made, including his insistence on the Schlieffen plan. His regret over the war's devastation was evident in his later writings, but the role his decisions played at Mons and beyond remained a significant part of his historical legacy. In the United States, President Woodrow Wilson, following his principle of neutrality, eventually led the country into war in 1917. The events at Mons had only affirmed his belief in peace, 
later reflected in his famous 14 points which aimed to prevent such conflicts in the future. The echoes of the Battle of Mons and the Great Retreat resonated through the annals of history, shaping the way future generations would remember and learn from the Great War. Each tale, each memory, each reflection added a layer to the complex tapestry of history, giving the Battle of Mons a significance that reached far beyond the battlefield. From leaders' decisions to soldiers' experiences, each contributed to a larger narrative, highlighting the many facets of the human experience in times of war. Monuments are our link to the past, reminding us of the bravery, sacrifices, and lessons from history. The Battle of Mons, with its profound impact on the Great War, has been commemorated in several ways, reminding future generations of the courage and determination of the soldiers who fought there. In the town of Mons, a large memorial stands in the city center, erected in honor of the British Expeditionary Force. Etched on it are the names of the brave men who fought and fell during the battle. Each year, a ceremony is held on the anniversary of the battle, where locals and visitors alike gather to pay their respects. Not far from the memorial, an old man, the grandson of Private Jack Watson, often brings his grandchildren. He shares the tales passed down to him by his grandfather, including the legend of the Angels of Mons. He points to the name of his grandfather etched on the monument, a poignant link to their family's past. In London, at the Imperial War Museum, a special exhibit dedicated to the Battle of Mons features artifacts from the battle, including the handwritten orders of Sir John French. The exhibit, visited by thousands each year, serves as a stark reminder of the events at Mons and their wider implications on the Great War. Back in the United States, a special lecture series at Harvard University's History Department explores the significance of the Battle of Mons. Professors draw connections to President Woodrow Wilson's policy of neutrality and later, his leading role in establishing the League of Nations. Meanwhile, in Germany, the Battle of Mons holds a different place in collective memory. It's seen as a key event that marked the beginning of the delays and eventual failures of the Schlieffen Plan, an important point of reflection in Germany's war history. These monuments and memories, scattered across the globe, serve as a testament to the Battle of Mons and its far-reaching impact. Each monument tells a story, each memory brings the past to life, and together, they ensure that the legacy of the Battle of Mons continues to be remembered and learned from for generations to come. As we journey through the corridors of time, the Battle of Mons offers us many important lessons that remain relevant even in the present day. At the military strategy level, the Schlieffen Plan's failure serves as a powerful reminder of the dangers of over-reliance on a single, inflexible strategy. Generals and military strategists today study the Battle of Mons and the Schlieffen Plan as case studies in strategic planning and the importance of flexibility in warfare. In the realm of leadership, Sir John French's role at Mons provides a study in decision-making under pressure. His controversial decision to order a retreat, while criticized by some, arguably saved the British army from complete annihilation. The balancing act between daring and caution, so evident in French's command, continues to be a topic of discussion in leadership courses around the world. From a socio-cultural perspective, 
The Angels of Mons story illustrates the role of legends and narratives in shaping collective memory. Folklore studies often reference this tale to emphasize how stories can bring hope and comfort during difficult times, uniting people in the face of adversity. At a diplomatic level, President Woodrow Wilson's response to the events at Mons underscores the complexity of neutrality in international conflicts. His struggle to keep the United States out of the war, despite the escalating crisis, is analyzed in diplomatic history, with parallels drawn to modern debates about intervention and neutrality. Finally, at a human level, the Battle of Mons reminds us of the courage and resilience of the soldiers on both sides. Their stories, like that of Private Jack Watson, echo across the years, telling us of the human spirit's capacity to endure and hope amidst the darkest hours. The Battle of Mons, thus, leaves us with many valuable lessons from the past. These lessons, extracted from the intricate web of events, decisions, and experiences, continue to guide us as we navigate our present and shape our future. As we remember and honor the past, we also learn from it, drawing on its wisdom as we move forward.